Hey, Black and Brainy family, it's Dr. Laura. You know, the late great brother Amos Wilson, the theoretical psychologist, social theorist, pan-Africanist, psychology professor, and prolific writer, once said that the way to conquer a people is to destroy the love that they have for one another. He also said that cultural continuity is maintained by educating children in the ways of their culture. And he said, they are educated in the ways of their culture to maintain their culture, to advance its interest, and ultimately to try to maintain its very survival. Today is Valentine's Day, if you celebrate that. And it's also Black History Month. I hope you've been celebrating that every day, all year long. But today, Dr. Miriam and I have a great conversation about the Black family, however you may choose to define that, and how each of us can participate in the revolutionary act of staying connected to family in order to preserve Black history on a very deep level. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Dr. Miriam, happy February, Black History Month, 2022. Um, You know, we are celebrating 365 days a year, but, uh, you know, it's it's a special time to highlight and celebrate in a lot of our institutions and stuff. So that's been fun. I know you've been doing some things. (laughs) I have, I have. Campus. in yes all over campus diving into um a lot of fantastic lesser known stories about blackness local and at the national level and across the diaspora so it's been it's been great and black here (laughs) great and black (laughs) always always um one of the things we were talking about earlier was you know, that is so lovely and beautiful to have all these celebrations and opportunities to really, um, you know, teach and kind of highlight some of the history, you know, just little snippets of great accomplishments, uh, notable figures, all this kind of stuff. But there's this experience of, you know, when you are working, especially with young people, and I know you described this in some of the programming that you've done, um, where you see that moment where the light bulb goes off mm-hmm. and you can tell that the, the critical consciousness is being awakened, you know, um, the consciousness is being raised and, and young people are making those connections. But then for me, I'm always like, oh my gosh, why is this the first time you've heard of this person or of you know why why is this the first time that you're learning about you know um Musa or why is this the first time that you're learning about all of the black 
uh, homesteads or towns, townships that were formed after the Civil War that were founded and, and run completely self-sufficiently by Black folks? Why is this the first time that, you, that you're learning about reconstruction or whatever? You know, like, why, why is this new? Yes. Um, like, yeah. why is this the first time that um, you're learning that Black history, African history um, predates uh, the slavery narratives? Yes. Why is this the first time that um, you're learning that the Black individuals that arrived on, arrived, that were forcibly brought, right, like, to this side of the world um, knew how to read and write because we came from really rich cultures. But if you don't know how to read and write in the language, like English that is here, they will then deem you as like not smart, not intelligent, unable to read and write, Ill illiterate. And why is this the first time that you learned that actually that's, that's not the reality. That's not what happened, right? Like so many, stories that you you could see um students really having a, their aha moment like wow mm -hmm. yeah which is great mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand and on the other hand it's like um I wish that these were things that were taught first of all at a much earlier age um and that these were things that we could then because we already know it build upon and that it's not every year having to go back and rediscover <laughs> the wheel, you know, reinvent the wheel in terms of um, going over these same kind of facts and um, experiences and, and have, you know, fully grown adults who are unfamiliar with these things kind of have to come to that, you know, so late in their lives, right. come into that um, awareness. I mean, of course, you know, we're lifelong learners and there's always going to be things that we didn't know that, you know, um, we enjoy learning about or whatever, but it's just like some of these things should be basic. And I know that, you know, we're not the first people to say that like this Black history should be taught at a much more in-depth um, and, and extensive level at all levels of education. Like uh, Black history like is is American history. Black history is history. It's human history. It's yeah, human I mean, history. like we're the first people on the face of the earth. It's so, history, period. You know, it, this, it seems like right now, a lot of, at least in the US, a lot of the trend is for this to actually, this conversation to be going backwards, right? In terms of books being banned that try to highlight and elucidate the, the um, history of Black folks and make it more prominent and really emphasize the contributions and just how integral we've been in the formation of this country and of the economy and of really um, all around the globe. A lot of the work that's been done by historians and social scientists uh, throughout, you know, the past few generations of Black scholarship is really being destroyed by politicians and people who want to literally make it illegal for us to learn these things and to become more familiar with, um, you know, just how deeply, yeah, I think for many people where they get a lot of their black history from, or at least traditionally, where they would get a lot of their sense of, you know, our true history from is not from the schools or, you know, the libraries or any of these institutions that we're 
depending on today to highlight these things, but it's actually from parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, other uh, elders or leaders in the community that would bring forth the stories of what our people have done, who we've been, what we've accomplished, what we've overcome. And that's where, you know, we would be able to preserve and really promote these narratives and learn about important people that we had no expectation that the school was going to teach us about, <laughs> you know, the right. really important folks in our communities. And so, um, you know, while it would be nice for those things to be more highlighted in, in mainstream public spaces, it also, you know, has traditionally been the role of the family and the community to do that. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that's not as functional now as maybe it has been in the past. What do you think? Well, I, I think very similarly to what you shared, um, I think that's part, that's part of why we wanted to bring this conversation to, to the podcast to, to talk through it because it's things that we both have noticed um, whether it's in like the circles that we frequent ourselves, but through what we're also consuming from the society that we're living in, right? Like there's a lot of things that are repeating themselves around mainstream culture, um, trying to stop us from learning about ourselves, like all the things that you said, and also the very point that you're saying around how um, like the continuous disruptions of, um, family well how what is understood to be family really um then gets in a way of that knowledge and that culture being then passed down to generations after generations and so when we're trying to make sense of that when we're trying to make sense of the like how are we constantly doing or at a place where we're constantly doing the critical consciousness um raising um it, it seemed like it was because of like that disruption of culture being passed down. Um, and that kept that that kept happening again and again and again. So we wanted to make sense of that a little bit. So if family is traditionally the site where culture and history gets passed down and transmitted from one generation to another, um, you know, what is going on that has kind of blocked that from happening? What is, um, what's the impediment you there? Know, you know, I think about something that you've, you've said that um, I really, I, I really liked how you hit my, my ears. Like, I like how you say that there's, there's a lot of things that we take on that is actually not meant for us. Um, and the we here, like I thinking, I'm thinking about like us as black people, right? And and I think that trickles down to um, like understanding of of family, right? Like oftentimes family can be seen as the the nuclear family, so parents, um, children, and if people even extend or expand their understanding of family, it may include um aunts uncles grandparents like that extended blood um related individuals that is oftentimes being seen as um this is family right um there's something that 
feels really um, narrow about that definition of family because what has been for us, family is defined according to Afrocentric values in a much broader, broader um, manner. Mm-hmm. You know, family, like that notion of village, right? Like we oftentimes hear it takes a village to raise a child. There's different variation of that same proverb um, across yeah. of the African continent and across the diaspora. But it was really this emphasis on a large community um, around our children to take care of, of our children. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that, when we're defining family, according to those Afrocentric uh, values, it includes our extended family and our and non-kin relations, right? Like, so neighbors, friends, teachers, um, in many ways, right? Like defining family is in that much broader sense. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I even think about um, people that we might not, really even know it all in certain in certain situations or circumstances being able to trust just members of the community um that maybe you're not that close to but you can trust that you know uh, if they see your kid out and it seems like there's a situation going on or they might be in some danger or they need some help that they would take it upon themselves to to check in and just make sure that everything's okay I understand that that might not be the world that we live in where a lot of people feel like they can't trust, um, you know, folks, especially strangers that much anymore, but that I think traditionally is something that we just kind of had an understanding that, you know, if someone is, is in your community that you can look out for them, you look out for uh, members of their family, especially the young people, because our young people are are vulnerable and need all of us to have our eyes on them. So one of the things that you and I often um, kind of check in about to celebrate is like recognizing, especially in the past few years, as people that are, you know, into psychology and mental health, we have this appreciation for the fact that a lot of our folks, especially online, we see these communities growing um, around people in support of Black mental health and recognizing all the different ways that Black mental health can be assaulted by just the dynamics of our society, of everyday life, workspaces, <laughs> online spaces, public spaces, you know, that this is, Ooh. you know, something that um, I think there's starting to be much more of an awakening and a recognition that Black mental health is something that needs to be cared for and taken seriously. People are reclaiming mm-hmm. their ability to just care for themselves and be gentle with themselves. We love the nap ministry. We often talking about, you know, just that idea that Black people are allowed to rest. We don't have to be, you know, the mules of society. (laughs) And that this- Like rest is not something that is earned. Yes, it is a right. And it is revolutionary for people who have always been treated as labor to allow themselves time and space to just rest. Um, so things like that, and I see a lot of communities like that, um, with people just finally 
taking their self-worth and their mental health seriously. Um, and that is a big undertaking. Uh, and it's an, it's an uphill battle. But I think it's something where people are, as their um, consciousness of these issues broadens, they're also bringing these same concepts into their relationships, um, their closest relationships, family, uh, children, you know, parenting, dealing with, um, you know, love relationships and romantic partnerships and things like that, and looking at how these different dynamics show up for us in all of these different spaces. So I think that, you know, that is very good. And I'm all for that. Agreed. And there's also a cost, which is one of the things that I see happening a lot. Um, and we talked about this in the Black Parent Village for a couple weeks, um, is that this idea of um, when you recognize that maybe part of your childhood was traumatic or you have some patterns within your family that were dysfunctional or toxic, or, you know, um, you have relationships with people that just don't feel good and affirming for you, that there can be this tendency, especially if you're paying a lot of attention to like this pop psychology out here, that's just really based on, um, it's really based on individualist white norms, you know, um, that of, of blaming parents and then cutting yourself off from people to become like this autonomous individual that can just recreate himself or herself and, and exist without relationships to other people. Um, that, you know, uh, some of us are adopting this pattern of, you know, my parents are toxic, so I'm just going to cut them off. Uh, <laughs> my, my brothers and sisters are, you know, um, problematic so I'm just not I'm just going to stop talking to them I'm basically just going to cancel you know my family of origin and just hang out with my friends or start new relationships and this even happens when people have their own kids and maybe they become really aware of things that were harmful to them when they were growing up and they don't want their own kids to experience that so then they go into this mode where it's like well I'm I'm never going to expose my child to this type of damage. So I'm just going to not have them spend time with some of these older people in the family that hurt me or that I found to be, you know, a problem when I was growing up. So there's that um, downside of some, you know, some of us kind of swinging so far in the opposite direction of, wanting to care for ourselves and our loved ones so much that one of the ways that that gets translated is that we just start cutting ourselves off from our families. Yeah. When you and I were talking about this, um, we, we went back and forth because one of the main things that we wanted to emphasize is how nuanced of a conversation this is, right? We're both psychologists. So by no means are we out here saying that um, children or um, individuals or like folks have to uh, be exposed to harmful, abusive people, 
especially if those people are in within your family network, right? Like we're like, this is clearly not what it is that we are talking about right now. It's very understandable, of course, for self-protection and protection of your your children or your loved ones or the folks that you are in care for, uh, that you're caring for, of course, it would make sense that you would want to, to shield them and protect them from harm that you have experienced or from, from those individuals that have not necessarily or may or may not have necessarily worked on some of the, the illnesses and the struggles that they are themselves fighting. So we understand the need at times to to separate and to distance oneself from, from that harm and to protect younger, vulnerable individuals from that harm. I think what we're wanting to bring up and talk about is, is a little bit nuanced. So we hope that our listeners are really like, at least like going along with us, like because we're trying to tease that apart a little bit more. Yeah. I think we want to complicate this notion of, um, it's either or, right? This kind of black or white thinking of either you're enmeshed with your family and you agree with everything they do and you're super close and everybody's healthy and happy or whatever, or um, you've got this dysfunctional, toxic family and you need to cancel everybody and you don't talk to anybody and you just, you know, stop engaging with them. Um, I think that that can be a knee-jerk reaction that happens, especially as people are just starting to um, really step into the mental health space and want to reclaim their wellness and, and um, you know, feel better um, and kind of create that space for themselves to heal from, from trauma that they might have experienced. And especially with uh, newer parents sometimes, I notice this a lot where they want to be the best parents. They're very idealistic. They have this idea that they're going to do it right, you know, because, you know, they're going to do the things that weren't done for them. They're going to be better um, at parenting than maybe their parents were for them. And there might be this tendency to go to extremes. Um, But I think ultimately we're asking to have all of us practice what you know, African-centered psychologists often call diunital logic, which is this ability to recognize that two things can be simultaneously true, even if they seem to be in opposition to each other. Um, They can both be true at the same time. So yeah, it it, it might be that your family has a lot of toxic patterns and, and tendencies. And it can also be true at the same time that family is really critical um, for us and that we stand to gain a lot from staying connected to people within our families. Um, And so it doesn't have to be either or. It might mean that we have to be creative and we have to be extremely intentional to find ways to preserve that family connection while still preventing harm. To Miriam's point, you know, family doesn't necessarily just mean blood, blood kin, right? So it could mean, yeah, we can't, uh, have our kids hanging around Uncle Joey <laughs> because he um, is is struggling with things that he's not willing to change and it's going to be damaging to us and our children to be engaged with him but his role as an uncle is a really important one 
in the lives of our children because it's uncles and aunties that really um, can serve as important um, confidants or mentors or, you know, just trusted adults in the lives of our kids, especially at times when we're not available. So we do need somebody to play that role. And so we're going to have to go out and deliberately cultivate a, a connection to a different elder or a different adult that we trust to play that uncle role for our children. But we can't just not have that role. You know, we can't just not have uncles and aunties. We have to make sure that somebody fills in that spot um, in the lives of our of our children or even of ourselves. Right. Because we don't stop needing (laughs) um, those people in our lives just because we grow up we all benefit from those family type connections they are what help to transmit the wisdom and the the stories and the culture that we're talking about um, when we have these black history month programs right so um, that's actually how culture and history gets passed down successfully is through keeping these connections intact And so maybe it can't be with the exact people that, you know, we're biologically related to, but it needs to be with someone and we have to be intentional about that. Right. We do. And, 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 and ultimately I think then being able to engage from that stance, right. Like to, to really position oneself in, in that would be to, behave in accordance to African Afrocentric values because from jump those are those those have been things that have been important to um, folks of African descent, right? Like having and maintaining some sort of intergenerational connection um, from children, for, for young adults, for middle-aged folks, for our elders having some sort of connection across these different stages and understanding that in a broader standpoint, right? Like thinking of it as not just the people that your blood related to, but other individuals is, it's what it boils down to. As Dr. Laura mentioned, um, the role of that uncle is important. And then that role may be served by a trusted, another trusted adult, friend or another family member um, that can then play that role that is ultimately essential for the well-being of the whole unit yeah yeah it could be a it could be a different relative a friend it could be a teacher it could be a spiritual leader it could be a colleague I mean these don't have to be people um, with any any kin ties to us but we need to have someone and I think you know to, to your point, Miriam, um, when we think about Afrocentric values, it's like traditionally children and elders are, for us, the most important members of the community. And um, you mentioned, you know, young people, middle age, elders, also ancestors, as we've talked about in previous episodes the family doesn't stop just because somebody dies, right? They continue to be a member of the family. They continue to be um, remembered and honored and upheld as a valuable member of the family. So, you know, that's another way in which we preserve and keep alive the legacy 
of folks in our community. So reconnecting with, yes, those family values and that village mindset, I think that's really, really critical um, when we're thinking about how do we create the continuity that we need um, to really preserve Black history on a very deep level. I really love that word, the continuity, being able to plug yourself in across a line that draws from from you, from um, you know the generation that's in front of you, and then the ones that are behind you, right? Um, that is how you're, um, in many ways, we're able to then center ourselves um, in all the ways for the good, the bad, but really, I guess, position ourselves in the fullness of our humanity um, and being able to then draw in that sense of self, that sense of pride, that sense of, di of dignity that makes us who we are as Black individuals in this world. So I keep talking about kids only because I have <laughs> so many. <laughs> my baby. Yeah. See my baby. <laughs> I'm in that, you know, traditional arrangement. Well, I say traditional. It's not our necessarily our tradition, but our, that typical or conventional, I should say, arrangement of the nuclear family with the husband and the, and the kids. Um, and so I think about, you know, this idea of family in that context sometimes, but um, you know, I know Miriam, for you, you were talking um, earlier about your role as an auntie and how you came to realize that that was so important, you know, not just for your own actual blood, like nephews and nieces, but also in the role that you play at work, that you work with young people and that auntie role um, was so valuable. It really, it really was. This is a a two-year-ish sort of realization where I, I shifted, it started with building stronger relationship with my nieces and nephews and those babies learning to recognize me and to, to think of their world and that includes me as part of that world. And it was such a different, um, wholesome, experience and I started really like stepping more into that role and recognizing how that same energy um was I was I was able to tap into it and also connect with it with children of my my close friends and and then expanded that to even my my workspace um I try to be mindful of of course not infant infantilizing who I'm interacting with um, but at the same time, there's there was something there's something really cool, really meaningful around um, like being able to exhibit like anti like characteristics and care uh, with the students that I work with, and then to see them also reacting positively to the to to that behavior, right? Like actually in a very organic manner that auntie um, relationship starts shaping so many of our interactions. And, and I think what I experienced and what I imagine their experience, at least from the feedback that they've shared is how um, it, it feels, it really transcends the, like how we can even describe it. And I've even gotten feedback from parents of these students that have been so grateful, immensely grateful 
for knowing that their children are however many miles and states away, but, right, but knowing that they have an auntie, that they're mm -hmm. there, that whatever they may be going on, that might be going on on campus, that they, I can have access to them, to care for them, to love on them, even before their parents may be able to get there and how that much that must appease their hearts as black parents being so far from their babies. So that role as auntie is something that I have grown to really recognize as an honor. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah. I love that. And as a parent, I, I love when I meet people <laughs> in the, in the broader community and network that I can see that energy in and that I know I'd be able to turn my babies over to and trust that you would have their best interests at heart. I think more of us need to see ourselves in that light as people that even if we don't have our own kids, we can be um, helpful, caring adults to people in the generation coming after us. And we can be people who reach out a helping hand and, and um, mentor or guide yes. other folks in the community, younger people. Um, that we can be part of their village. And I think a lot of parents like myself need to maybe um, get out of our comfort zones a little bit because in reacting to, you know, the society that we live in, we've gotten really closed and mistrustful of even other Black folks um, and not really wanting to see them or not always able to see them as people that can be a part of that bigger network that can help catch our our kids um you know should they be in a space where we can't protect them or we can't be their main support system um that there are other folks out there that can play that role and it's actually critical for us to allow other folks to play that role um because we can't be everything uh, that's how we burn ourselves out trying to be everything to everybody and we need the village just as much as the kids do to really, um, you know, function as as it's intended. Yes, well said. I think that we want to just reiterate again that we are not um, saying that children should ever be exposed to harmful or abusive people <laughs> or yes. just thrown out um, and entrusted to anyone, as even people within our our blood families, we know that people can be um, very dysfunctional. We know that, you know, you know, I, I've had experiences of uh, personality disordered people and um, people struggling with addiction and really severe mental illness where, you know, you really can't um, have much of a connection if somebody's not in a space where they can um, have empathy towards you where they can realistically, you know, look past themselves to be able to, to play the role that they need to play, um, to support you or to support younger people in the family. And so it's not everyone that we're going to be able to have these connections with. Um, we also need to hold elders accountable if they've done things that have been harmful or damaging and elders need to be willing to apologize and to make amends and to, you know, try to repair that damage. But I think, as we said at the beginning, we are coming into a new 
era of awakening around mental health issues and um, especially within our community, just the importance of doing this internal work and not everybody's moving at the same rate towards, <laughs> you know, getting that work done and, and looking at some of the hard things that are going on within our minds, as well as the things that are pressing us from outside that create stress and trauma. And so, um, you know, whereas we can, we can see some of the dysfunctional patterns and we know we don't want to repeat them. Mm -hmm. uh, we also need to acknowledge the humanity and the wounds of our elders. We need to acknowledge that, you know, we're not perfect and they're not perfect. And yes, they sometimes have dysfunctional coping patterns, but they're also reacting to their own trauma, right? They had their own passed down generational wounds and trauma that they're responding to. And for many of them, they are doing the absolute best that they can. They're doing what they knew how to do. They're doing what was taught to them. They're doing what the systems around them allowed them to do. Um, and a lot of them had a lot more limitations than, than we've had. You know, we've been privileged to, in many ways, be free of some of the constraints that they were forced to deal with. And so I think we need to acknowledge that as well. Um, again, instead of just being willing to cut folks off, maybe we find ways to work with them to heal some of the damage um, and repair some of the harms and try to keep that connection intact as much as we possibly can, even if it means you know, looking at our kids and saying, hey, uh, <laughs> Auntie, you know, Susan is struggling with some things that I hope you never have to go through. And here's, you know, why we won't be spending a ton of time with her, but she's a good person. She's a beautiful person. You can learn a lot from her. And um, these are the things that that are not okay about her behavior. And, and we need to be real about that as well. Yeah, and I should also say that full disclosure, I'm, I'm speaking about this from a place of personal experience because I am someone who, you know, early in my life felt like I needed that space. My dad, bless his soul, he's an ancestor now, but when he was alive, everyone who knew him, knew he was <laughs> he was his own man he had what we might call um clinically like an access to type personality <laughs> he um was just really rigid and stubborn um you know he had his own mind he was a loving father and a great businessman but there were you know, traumas from his own life, having grown up, you know, in the Jim Crow South, having been in combat, that he just never fully worked out. And it was sometimes really difficult to grow up with him. It was sometimes really difficult. I know for my mom to be married to him, it was sometimes really difficult to try and thrive under his criticism and, um, you know, just his way of being in the world. And so as a young woman, um, as a young graduate student, actually, and a young mom myself, that wasn't an energy that I always wanted to take my, my babies around, you know? 
I did want them to have a relationship with their grandfather. And I knew that he had a wealth of wisdom to share with them from his life experience, but it wasn't, it wasn't going to be delivered in a way that was necessarily loving or helpful. Um, and I couldn't guarantee that it wouldn't come with some damage. And so I actually moved away. I moved 3,000 miles away to go pursue you know, my career. I, I picked up the family, we all moved. Um, and my dad was in the Midwest, I was on the West Coast. We maintained a connection, but there was definitely distance physically and emotionally. And there was definitely a strong boundary there because I had to carve out space for myself to heal and to learn some new skills for dealing with him. And after a few years of studying psychology, of studying uh, communication skills, of studying conflict resolution, I was able to come back and, and have a stronger relationship with him. But it took a lot of effort and energy. So I'm saying that just to say, I totally understand people for whom, you know, they need that space and they are trying to protect their young ones from what can sometimes even be unintentional, but still very dysfunctional habits and patterns that our elders just used to perpetuating. And so I'm an advocate of, you know, taking the time to learn the skills that we need to be able to communicate with people effectively and in ways that preserve our mental health while also trying to keep what we can of a loving connection with them. Understanding that, you know, they, meaning our elders, are not necessarily going to change their behavior or change who they are just because we're attempting to change, but we can try and be patient and, and tolerant as much as possible in the service of keeping that connection alive. So I think that that's all we got for uh, this episode, but I think that's a lot <laughs> and is, enough for us all to think about. It's a lot to, to digest, um, you know, even, even in closing, I think what I am, um, what I'm taking away, or at least we'll continue to reflect on is um, how expensive um, my definition or family or how expensive I would like it to be even more, right? Expensive as in large. Um, and, and, and I think, it, I mean, we talked about this being, this is traditional African values. Um, and, and I think in many ways, that's also been what has made a survival of our black queer babies throughout the years, throughout the generations and how they've been able to, um, to make it through, right? Like by the, the concept of chosen family. Um, yes. And, you know, I think it goes back to that. It's family. That's, That's such a powerful, um, such a powerful concept. And I know, you know, folks in the queer community have kind of, um, popularized and been using that term for quite some time to describe 
you know, the ways that they build family when they've been ostracized or excluded or kicked out of their birth families because of their orientation or their identity. Um, but I also want to say, like, it, it's not a new concept. Think about people coming over here forced to uh, be separated from their kin on slave ships, sold to different plantations. They get to wherever they're going, and they need to build new families, right? They need to choose who they're going to relate to um, in that familial kind of way. And so that's something that we've been doing for centuries, mm -hmm. um, and we need to remember that that's one of our superpowers as yeah. well just one of many <laughs> that's right yeah thank you so, for this conversation thank you dr miriam i appreciate you so much you know you're my sister and right. uh <laughs> and i'm and i'm an auntie you to your family. babies you sure I are <laughs> okay. and i hope that you know uh our folks continue to to thrive and to come into these spaces um, where we can heal together. Yes. Take care, everyone. Love y'all.